This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. We expect today to be an unusual program. We're going to take a look back to some conversations we had in like 2004, also 2006. Back in 2004, we, we spoke with Bob Perry, the man who broke the Iran-Contra story. Mr. Perry was one of the founders of ConsortiumNews.com, and we expect to read some excerpts from his work on that site from like 2011 and 2014. The reason for our look back at Robert Perry, and also for Barbara Honiger, who we spoke to in 2006, was the fact that there's been an update to the story of the October Surprise. Back in 1979, the Iranian revolutionary government stormed the embassy, the U.S. embassy in Tehran, and took numerous workers there hostage. They remained as hostages for, I think, 444 days total. But the thing is, they didn't have to be held hostage that long because Jimmy Carter was working very hard to cut a deal with the Ayatollah Khomeini to get his people out. But the Republicans decided the thing to do was to make sure that didn't happen. Their fear was that if Jimmy Carter landed the hostages back in the U.S. of A. to uh, ticker tape parades, etc., uh, this would might enable him to win the election. Anyway, there's been an update to this story. Someone has now said he took part in the effort to join the Republicans, in this case John Conley, in talking to various uh, heads of state and others in Europe to pass the word along to the Ayatollah, just keep the hostages. You'll get a better deal from the Republicans. Anyway, we're going to talk about that in our second segment today at great length. And as I mentioned, we're going to take some excerpts from our previous conversations on that very topic. We have reached out, or trying to reach out to Barbara Honiger, who wrote the book October Surprise back in the 90s. I I checked on Amazon, and I could have got myself a copy, but it's going to set me back like $137. So being a cheapskate, I'm looking for an alternative way of reading it. We do have an intermediary that knows Barbara Honiger. He is reaching out to her, and perhaps we will bring her on the show in the not-too-distant future. I certainly hope so. We have some worthwhile uh, conversation with her from the past that, like I said, we're going to re-air in our second segment today. I guess we should start off the first segment today, more properly, by uh, doing an update on that $100 bet. Mr. Mullen and I have going about whether Donald Trump will be indicted or arrested or charged or something by the end of the month. Oh, we don't have to get into that now. Oh, I think we do. Uh, my feeling all along has been that my money, my $100, is as safe as if it was in the bank. And no, I don't mean the Silicon Valley Bank. And I think that by the time we're done with today's program, you will fully understand, dear listener, my cynicism in this area. Because before we're done today, we're going to talk about a lot of other government investigations and probes that took place that should have uh, done some things that they wound up falling short of doing. Although I was impressed in doing my review for our talk today uh, over the Iran-Contra case that, boy, a lot of people were charged and a lot of them went to jail. Now, of course, George Herbert Walker Bush wound up pardoning a lot of his, uh, I guess you'd say, co-conspirators in the case when he was uh, ending his term as president. And I must say that I, 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 was, I was flabbergasted in going back at the expanse of uh, what has taken place over the past many decades. The last couple decades, we've been talking about it here on the air. 
But let's just say there's some recurrent themes and some recurrent individuals that give one cause for pessimism. Speaking of pessimism, a a longtime listener reported last week that he was quite amused at the comment we made on the program that if things didn't get turned around environmentally, that, uh, you know, you could stick a fork in it. We were done. And boy, isn't that the truth in our looming environmental disaster, which we would note is linked, completely linked to the world's population problem, although there's tremendous pushback on doing anything about that. That we're not going to talk about at great length on today's show, but boy, uh, I expect to do it next week. And uh, before we take a deep dive into politics, I thought I would talk a little bit about the weather. Mark Twain famously said many years ago that everybody talks about the weather, but nobody does anything about it. The irony is that today, in the 21st century, everybody is doing something about it, and we're also talking about it. I'm really struck by the fact that um, California's exceptionally wet year has largely restored what was once the largest freshwater lake in America west of the Mississippi. Now, I'm pretty sure, dear listener, that you've never visited Tulare Lake, but the main reason being that Tulare Lake was drained a long time ago. For the most part, Tulare Lake has been cotton fields. There's a great book on, on the subject of Tulare Lake and the cotton grown down there in, in Kern County, uh, a book I think it was titled The King of California. It was put out by a couple of L.A. Times uh, reporters. And the L.A. Times is up on the current situation in Tulare Lake with the following article titled, Worry and Suspicion Rain as Once-Dried Tulare Lake Drowns California Farmland. And the dateline is Corcoran, California. Notes the piece. For the first time in decades, Tulare Lake is reappearing in the valley, reclaiming the lowlands at its historic heart. Once the largest freshwater lake west of the Mississippi River, Tulare Lake was largely drained in the late 19th and early 20th centuries as the rivers that fed it were dammed and diverted for agriculture. This month, after a historic series of powerful storms, the Phantom Lake has reemerged. Rivers that dwindled during the drought are swollen with runoff from heavy rains and snow and are flowing full from the Sierra Nevada into the valley, spilling from canals and broken levees into fields that usually teem with lucrative plantings of tomatoes, cotton, and hay. Now, the last time we had this, this level of water in California was about, oh, I think, 1982 or 3. I forget. Maybe it was the, the winter of 82 slash 3. I remember flying over that portion of California and looking down with astonishment at this huge body of water that's not normally there. And I'll bet dollars to donuts if you fly from Sacramento down to Burbank. Uh, <laughs> these days, you'll see it again sprawling across former farmland. Now, the part that's that's sort of delicious about this great water story in California is that after draining the lake, putting agricultural land in its place, the farmers have been able to get flood relief afterwards for the fact that they planted their crops in what was once a lake bottom. Yeah, I know. Who could have imagined that it would ever flood? Now, the sizes, they really cannot be, uh, be underestimated. Back in the day, when it was that largest lake west of the Mississippi, it was four times the area of Lake Tahoe. And, of course, the agronists are claiming, as they always do, that the flood isn't being handled properly. The piece quotes one authority as saying that uh, he works with one grower who has 2,400 acres of pistachio trees choking underwater. Well, yeah. 
remember reading many years ago about how in, in China they had established flood control many centuries ago, but when they started planting the land, it became so lucrative that when the floods came, they refused to, uh, to flood the channels that were set up to divert the water. And what do you know? We have something like that going on here. As the water builds up, there's talk of cutting into the levees and letting the, the water flow down into what was the lake bottom and away from the towns. And the farmers aren't in favor of that. To quote from the piece, the Kings County Board of Supervisors stepped in to settle a dispute, ordering Boswell's managers, Boswell's the large farm enterprise down there, to cut a levee and send water toward the lake bottom and into their fields and those of other growers, rather than trying to pump the water up to higher elevations. They note that Boswell's representatives did not respond to emails from the Times requesting an interview. Now, apparently back in 1983, the decision was made to take large portions of the water that was rushing in and divert it to Southern California cities. They claim they pumped a million acre feet to L.A. that would have gone into the lake. Boswell paid for that just to dewater the lake faster. Another factor here is that as they keep pumping water out of the ground, I mean, once you've taken the lake and drained it, and you want to keep irrigating, well, one way to do it is to keep pumping water from underneath where the lake used to be, which has caused subsidence to the tune of something like 24 feet at the bottom of the lake. I think, dear listener, I'm going to try and make a trip out to inspect what's going on there in Tulare Lake and report back uh, firsthand on what I find. I'll, I'll probably just drive up to the lake edge, although I would like to be able to go up with a pilot and fly over it. That would be fun. We'll see. There's been an awful lot of talk of how California is not replenishing the groundwater, and all the estimates are that even though this is an exceptionally wet year, that's not going to solve our problems. But it's got to help to just let the water percolate back down into the ground. Of course, my understanding is that once you pump the water out and the ground subsides, the water doesn't go back in to fill those pores because the pores have collapsed. Anyway, enough of that. And since we're talking about some good reporting from the Los Angeles Times... Since we're talking about some good work done by the Los Angeles Times, I think I will now cite one of their opinion pieces, which um, is worthy of quoting. The column is about the 20th anniversary of the Iraq War, noting that it also marks a colossal failure of the mainstream media. Piece by Robin Abkarian notes that 20 years ago, George W. Bush ordered the invasion of Iraq, toppling the despot Saddam Hussein and fomenting a kind of hell that Iraq is still grappling with today. 20 years ago, this country's mainstream media, with one notable exception, bought into phony Bush administration claims about Hussein's stockpiles of weapons of mass destruction, helping cheerlead our nation into a conflict that ended the lives of thousands of Americans and hundreds of thousands of Iraqis, along with the criminally poor post-war planning on the part of Bush administration officials also unleashed horrible sectarian strife, leading to the emergence of ISIS and displacing more than one million Iraqi citizens. That sad chapter in American history produced its share of jingoistic buzzwords and phrases, WMD, the axis of evil, regime change, yellow cake uranium, the coalition of the willing, and a cheesy but terrifying refrain repeated ad nauseum by Bush administration officials, such as then National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice, we don't want the smoking gun to be a mushroom cloud. The memorable metaphor was dreamed up by the late Michael Gerson, a Bush speechwriter at the time. Of course, notes Abkarian, there never was any smoking gun, mushroom-shaped or not. 
Iraq's stockpiles of weapons of mass destruction had been destroyed in 1991 after Iraq invaded Kuwait and was beaten back by a coalition of 35 countries. The UN Security Council had also required Iraq to end its biological and nuclear weapons programs. Bush officials manufactured phony links between Iraq and the 9-11 attacks orchestrated by Islamist militant Osama bin Laden and his terrorist group Al-Qaeda. To his lasting mortification, the late Secretary of State Colin Powell assured the world in a speech to the UN just before the invasion that the war was completely justified by the danger Iraq posed to the world. My colleagues, every statement I make today is backed up by sources, solid sources, said Powell. These are not assertions. What we're giving you are facts and conclusions based on solid intelligence. His statements, he later acknowledged, were patently false, many of which provided to U.S. intelligence by unreliable sources, exiles like Ahmed Chalabi, an Iraqi opposition leader who dreamed of ousting Hussein and taking the reins of power himself in Iraq. Powell's statements are among those documented in 2008 by the Center for Public Integrity, which compiled the hundreds of lies told by Bush and his top officials as part of a campaign aimed at persuading the American public to support the invasion of Iraq under decidedly false pretenses. The opinion piece cites three reporters and the organization Knight Ritter, the Washington Bureau, as, 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 as four people. Reporters Jonathan Landy, Warren Strobel, and Joe Galloway, and their editor John Walcott, as throwing water on much of what the mainstream media was reporting. This drama was captured in Shock and Awe, a 2017 feature film by Rob Reiner, who played Walcott. I do want to interject that it wasn't just Knight Ritter, that the McClatchy organization also deserves a pat in the back for expressing some skepticism over the lies that were being spread to the public by the Bush administration. And I don't mind saying, yeah, Mr. McMillan, that we, we were on the right track on this. We were very skeptical. We thought the weapons of mass destruction was bull. The New York Times was reporting bull through the, through the auspices of Judith Miller, who had some ridiculous stories about uh, biological weapons, etc. It'd be nice to say at this point that, you know, we're glad the media has learned its lesson and is, and is now more skeptical of some of the things that's being fed by administrations, but, well... There's been some progress. I had to laugh at the, the note that in a speech last May at the Bush Presidential Center in Dallas, W said it was the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq. I, I mean, Ukraine. He reportedly winced and almost under his breath added, Iraq too. We could do a whole show on the review of, of what, what was said and done back then and, and what a pack of lies it was, but, uh, well, it won't be today's show. Instead, I'm going to focus on something that we've been been griping about lately, not back during the Bush-Cheney years. And this would be how, in our opinion, the mainstream media seems to be missing a lot of the real stories they should be talking about as regards to AI, chat GPT, etc. And and make no mistake about it, there's a lot of skepticism out there about this technology, which we are glad to quote from. But for the most part... The PR that comes out of Silicon Valley is dictated by, well, the giants of Silicon Valley. Or at least so says Annalee Newitz, science journalist writing in New Scientist magazine. And uh, her her column, I think I'm going to quote from at great length here. The chatbot apocalypse? AI entrepreneurs like to claim products such as chatbots could become conscious in any minute. We need to resist this dystopian marketing hype. 
said Newitz. I always know there's something fishy going on with a new product when journalists start desperately reaching out to science fiction authors to explain it for them. Such is the case with ChatGPT, an artificial intelligence chatbot from a San Francisco company, OpenAI, which has become one of the world's most widely used apps in just a few short months. So many news outlets were asking science fiction writers to weigh in on AI's capabilities that the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers Association had to issue a special media statement on its website linking to dozens of authors' thoughts on the matter. Typically, she says, when a cutting-edge tech product comes out, you would expect engineers, scientists, and researchers to comment on it. But OpenAI isn't a typical company. It deals in myth-making and hype-spinning, and its representatives portray the firm's products as the first stage of artificial general intelligence or human-equivalent consciousness. The OpenAI blog is packed with science-fictional scenarios, many written by the company's co-founder Sam Altman, about how ChatGPT and the firm's picture-creating product DAL-E are on the cusp of utterly transforming humanity and possibly even destroying it. I'm not saying ChatGPD isn't a fun little app with lots of applications, but at this point, its notoriety comes largely from marketing. Altman and other AI entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley are fond of saying that AI products may cause an existential threat because they could become super intelligent, conscious beings at any moment. Then they would have the power to wipe us out or turn us into paperclips or something even more bizarre. She asks, the question is, why would you use such a dark vision of your product to market it to people? Partly, it is to make a rather silly chatbot like ChatGPT sound a lot more formidable than it is. If you could be convinced that the current AI apps will go Skynet any day now, then maybe you'll buy the idea that ChatGPT is a powerful revolutionary breakthrough. The other reason to use this kind of dystopian hype is that it allows companies like OpenAI to cast themselves as the heroes that will save us from the coming chatbocalypse. Anyway, we certainly appreciate her perspective on, uh, on the overblown rhetoric that does come out of Silicon Valley, but we think she may be downplaying the actual threat involved in, in this AI and what chatbots can do. Writing on this exact same topic, also in New Scientist magazine, Matthew Sparks, in an article titled, Chat GPT Tells Robots What to Do, that uh, we should take a look. The piece notes that Microsoft says it has used the natural language AI chat GPT to control a range of robots with simple text commands. The approach means people with no engineering or coding experience will be able to instruct sophisticated robots to carry out tasks. ChatGPT was created by OpenAI, a company that itself is partly owned by Microsoft. The chatbot was trained on a vast amount of data, including source code. It has previously demonstrated the ability to write software based on text prompts and even to fix errors in existing code. Microsoft has now used the AI to take text commands from humans and interpret them into code that can control robots directly. Who thinks this is a good idea? Matthew Sparks notes that robots are typically controlled by software that has been written by humans and sets out precise instructions, or else by some form of relatively simple neural network AI that can learn to carry out tasks based on large numbers of examples. Microsoft has said in a blog post that ChatGPT allows a user to give a robot instructions and then either review the code it outputs to check for errors or watch a simulated robot executing them. The user can then give feedback if needed. 
ChatGPT isn't in direct real-time control of the robots, but simply creates the code that controls it. Here's the part I like the best. Microsoft said in its blog post that ChatGPT output shouldn't be deployed directly onto a robot without a careful analysis. But ex experts warn that it's risky even to begin thinking about placing AI in control of physical machines. They quote an expert as saying, it's a very dangerous thing just to say, let's give control of these computers to AI. He notes that the problem with contemporary artificial intelligence is that it's not transparent to the user, which is a huge problem. Now, this, this uh, dovetails with something that Sparks had written in, in a month earlier in New Scientist. I think I should quote from this piece, too, titled Searching for Answers. Sparks said at that time, we're at a point at which AI chatbots are technically impressive, but not yet totally reliable factually. This lack of accuracy presents another potential problem. Language models like OpenAI, ChatGPT, which Microsoft is integrating into Bing, essentially output a string of words based on the statistical likelihood they would appear together in the real world. However, this isn't the same as accessing accuracy or objectivity. BuzzFeed, Sports Illustrated, and CNET have all recently dabbled with using AI to write articles for them, though they quickly rolled back the idea after finding the output riddled with errors. AI-powered search engines have also gotten off to a rocky start. Google ran an ad for its BARD AI model, in which it erroneously claimed that the James Webb Space Telescope took the first images of an exoplanet, which it didn't. In response to that article in New Scientist, someone wrote a letter to the magazine, posing the notion that with AI being also used to generate increasing volumes of Internet content, will these systems end up training themselves with their own output? If so, what effect will that have on the accuracy of information on the Internet? Well, addressing that very issue is Mark Summer, writing in the Daily Coast. His article is provocatively titled, The Wave of Large Language Model AI Isn't Just a Threat to Jobs, It's the End of Objective Facts. Sumner notes that the erosion of objective fact was already scary heading into 2016, well before Kellyanne Conway uttered the immortal phrase, Alternative Facts. He adds, and now the new explosion of AI is here to help. Not to help sort out the facts, help make it even more difficult to see through the lies and distortions. He reports the explosion of AI over the last year has been centered on something called large language models. Rather than neural networks laboriously taught a series of rules for dealing with the situation, these are programs that are instead fed large data sets from which they determine the rules in the form of a statistical model. They learn how to respond to the idea of a cute kitten, or a nuclear threat, in the same way they learn the rules of grammar, by looking at thousands or millions or thousands of millions of examples. One of the things that these models have learned consistently is how to tell a convincing lie. For an example, look at this article from Scholarly Kitchen, in which ChatGPT was asked about the connection between tweets and scientific citations. Human, do tweets increase citations to scientific articles? ChatGPT. There is evidence to suggest that tweets can increase citations in scientific articles. Studies have shown that social media, specifically Twitter, can be an effective way to disseminate scientific research and increase its visibility among researchers and the general public. A study by the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS, found that other articles that were tweeted about had an average of 9% more citations than articles that were not tweeted about. Note Sumner. In this case, the person asking the questions happened to be an expert 
who had done research on exactly this area. He not only knew the answer was incorrect, he was able to use his context to establish that there was no such study. But how many people would have known this? How many would have accepted this at face value given that ChatGPT didn't just make a claim, but backed it with what it claimed was a study in perhaps the most reputable of peer-reviewed publications? Examples like this have been repeated on topic after topic. In teaching these models from the internet, they've learned to make information appear authoritative even when it's pulled from its digital arse. Now, I had a long conversation about this article with uh, our, I guess, our AI specialist, uh, computer scientist Don Rose, and he said, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say this is lying. There's, there's, no, you know, there's no intention to deceive here. And I'm like, oh, the hell there's not. The program is asked to come up with an answer. It then combs through masses of data to give you the answer you seek. But nowhere along the way does there appear to be a, 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 an algorithm in the program that says, oh, and it has to be factual. Now, we can quibble about whether there's an intention to deceive here, but I, I, would, I would suggest that there is. The program is asking the chatbot to answer a specific question, which it does. But it's trying to please the person that's asking the question. And in doing so, well, I guess it reminds me of well, just to think of one night I was in Thailand. I wasn't sure where a market was, and I was heading down the street trying to find it. I asked some local citizens if I was headed in the right direction to the market. They smiled, nodded, and said yes, and pointed in that same direction I was walking. Well, wouldn't you know it, that wasn't the direction of the market. But it is a common phenomenon in, in certain areas that people eager to please you want to give you the answer that you like. They, they don't seem to factor in the consequence that when you find out that you were misled and you went in the wrong direction, you're going to be even more unhappy. Now, one could argue that the, that the chatbot isn't necessarily knowing what it is you seek in the answer it's going to serve up, but it does know what's going to satisfy you. When it tells you that, you know, that uh, articles that were tweeted have 9% more citations, according to the American Association for the Advancement of Science, and that's just plain made up. I like that phrase pulled out of its digital arse. Well, then I think we're just kind of splitting hairs about you know, whether, whether there's malice or, or, or evil intention involved. doesn't matter. You're given bad information in the end because it's trying to answer the question that you posed. Before we leave the subject, let us, let us close the article by noting that it, it cited an article from The Verge. And some notes from that, you can glimpse how bad this is going to get. He says, right now, if you ask Microsoft's Bing chatbot if Google's Bard chatbot has been shut down, it says yes, citing as evidence a news article that discussed a tweet in which a user asked Bard when it would be shut down, and Bard said it already had, itself citing a comment from Hacker News, which someone joked about this happening, that someone else used ChatGPT to write fake news coverage about the event. This is an AI citing a lie created by another AI, which was citing an article from another AI based on something that the last AI was instructed to write based on a joke. If you went onto the internet right now, asked a question, and got an answer that included a citation, that included a citation, that included a citation, how far would you really try to unravel things to determine if you were being told the truth? Anyway, Sumner closes by saying the surge of these AIs isn't just a threat to anyone who works with images, words, or numbers, which is essentially everyone. It's a loaded bomb ready to blow away our last concept of shared reality in which there is an agreed-upon set of authoritative facts, 
and our grip on that reality was already slipping. Heard it from a friend who Heard it from a friend who Heard it from another you've been messing around Anyway, you've heard it from us authoritatively that we need to take a short break, so let's do that. You're listening to Radio Parallax.